I'm going to start uh, by uh, admitting to something that I maybe shouldn't admit to. Uh, it's a bit, a bit of a habit of mine, so you're going to have to get used to that. Uh, I got to probably Thursday night this week uh, with one sermon, and then I was uh, thinking about it and praying on my way home Thursday night, and uh, by the end of Friday, I had a completely different sermon. Uh, so I really genuinely don't know how this is going to go, uh, but uh, thank you for being guinea pigs. Uh, but yeah, let's get started. Uh, when Lucy Pevensey decided to hide in the wardrobe uh, during a game of hide-and-seek, uh, she had no idea that she was actually going to be walking into a whole new world of fawns and talking beavers, uh, an evil ice queen, a salvific lion. Uh, she thought she was just going to hide behind some coats. Uh, when Frodo inherited his uncle Bilbo's ring, he had no idea that he was walking into the middle of an all-encompassing battle for the soul of Middle-earth. He just thought it was a nice piece of jewelry. When Timon and Pumbaa took in a lost lion cub in the wilderness to prevent it being eaten by vultures, uh, they had no idea that they were actually going to be raising the next king of the Pride Lands and putting themselves in the middle of a large-scale conflict that would affect the entire animal kingdom. They were just hoping that he would prevent them being eaten by something else. Life is full of situations that are actually much, much bigger than we realize when we get into them. Uh, this is even more true when it comes to our understanding of who God is and what He is doing in the world. Our vision of who He is and what He's doing routinely turns out to be far too small. We worship a far bigger God who's doing far bigger things in the world than we could possibly understand right now. In today's text, we're going to see three different groups and individuals approach Jesus with questions. And the questions that they ask are going to show us one way that the God they are picturing and His activity is far too small. We're going to explore how we fall into some of the same patterns. And finally, we're going to see how Jesus Himself exposes the smallness of their thinking and expands their vision of God and the coming kingdom. And hopefully, our own vision will expand in the process. When I was in uh, middle school and high school, I had a friend in my class who, uh, who also lived really close to me. So we saw each other in school and out of school, uh, weekdays and weekends. We spent a lot of time together. I was raised in the church. I was baptized at around... 13 years old, and I genuinely believed at that point, although I had a lot of spiritual growing up to do. Uh, my friend was an atheist, and he was very, very certain of his convictions, and so this formed a frequent topic of conversation between us. He felt that religion was man-made, that belief in God was a crutch for the weak, all those old chestnuts. Uh, one of his go-to arguments was a logic trap that in his mind, either way, however I answered it, would have me and my God trapped and would expose the fallacy of my beliefs. He would ask me, if God is all-powerful, can He create a rock that is too heavy for Him to lift? <laughs> uh, incidentally, I actually asked an elder at my church that question, and he said that the answer was yes, and then he would be able to lift it anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave you to decide uh, what you think about that, and maybe if you have a better answer, you can let me know after the service. Uh, but as I said, he felt that he had us 
trapped with this question. Either God was limited in what He could create, or He was limited in strength. And he asked this question because he already was convinced that God didn't exist. I tried reasoning with him that this was a ridiculous question. Uh, there were far bigger and better questions to ask. I tried explaining that God was not at all limited in what He could do, and His only limitations came in the form of what He would do, that He would never act in a way that was inconsistent with His character, but that all the universe around us was evidence of the limitless power of God, the stars, the planets, the vastness of space, our planet teeming with life, all of which is contingent on something creating it, none of it able to simply exist in and of itself. I didn't use those exact words when I was 13, but that was the argument. <laughs> uh, I tried pointing out that no matter how far back you go, you reach a point when there was nothing, and someone had to have brought everything that is out of that nothing. But he wasn't really interested in hearing any of this. He simply returned to his question about the rock and whether or not God could lift it. The first group to approach Jesus in this text with a question are the Pharisees, and Mark tells us clearly that their intention in doing so was to trap him in his talk with a very similar attitude to my childhood friend. The chief priests and the scribes had been em embarrassed and enraged by Jesus' parable of the tenants, which called them out for working against God and against His plans for the world. So they send the Pharisees to trap Him. The text tells us this. But why did they choose the trap they did? Why did they ask Him about paying taxes to Caesar? Well, this shows you clearly who they thought He was. Messianic expectation at this time revolved around the belief that a king would emerge from the line of David, defeat and overthrow Rome, and restore Israel to a golden era like that of David and Solomon. They're asking Jesus whether it's right to pay taxes to Caesar because they see him as a Messiah figure. Maybe they think he's a fake, or maybe they're afraid he might even be the real one. The people were certainly thinking about it. It wasn't that long ago they were waving palm branches and singing Hosanna. But either way, if they can tempt Jesus to put himself out there as a Messiah figure, then they've, you know, they've, they've kind of got him cornered. Because if he, he comes out and he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, it's not right that Caesar is, is ruling us, then they've got a rope that they can use to get the Romans to hang him with. But on the other hand, if he comes out and he says, no, I think it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, then he would lose credibility with the people as a Messiah figure. So either way, they feel that they've got him neutralized as a threat to their authority. They see him as a, po a potential political threat. Uh, they fear his purposes, whether those be to overthrow Rome or to supplant them and the role that they enjoy having with the people. They don't want him to rule or overthrow Rome. They want to get rid of him. But they're playing on the fact that the people do have that hope. Jesus, however, clearly knows their hearts even before they ask the question. He responds to them, why put me to the test? And then he gives them an answer that kind of walks the tightrope in between the traps that they've tried to set for him and refocuses the conversation on what Jesus has actually come for, which is to restore the relationship between humanity and God. Jesus' answer is, in some senses, a very political response. He does not encourage people to rebel against Roman rule or prepare for Operation Overthrow, but neither does he rubber stamp Caesar as his favorite guy. 
he doesn't refuse taxes to Caesar, but at the same time, when he says, give to God what belongs to God, he does implicitly challenge uh, that Caesar should be worshipped as a deity and ascribe things that only belong to God. Ultimately, though, his answer serves to communicate to those listening that Jesus is not the kind of Messiah they are expecting. He's not come to grab political power or fulfill their ambitions of a second earthly kingdom of David. He reminds them of the reality that they're currently living under Roman rule and should therefore pay taxes. And then he refocuses them on what matters most, which is their relationship with God. The relationship with God is the problem he has come to address, not their relationship with Caesar. He'd come to defeat sin and death and establish an eternal kingdom where they would be in the presence of God forevermore. They didn't at all understand what kind of Messiah he was or what he had come to save them from. Their vision was nowhere near big enough. They had much bigger enemies than Rome that he had come to conquer and a much more perfect kingdom that he had come to establish. I think sometimes we ourselves, while we know that Jesus is the Messiah, we want him to be a different kind of Messiah than he actually is. We want him to have an immediate political agenda, which usually conveniently lines up exactly with our own. We want to believe that the political landscape of our country is the main item on God's global agenda and the first item to be rectified on the to-do list of the coming kingdom and that he sees it exactly as we do. Some people go so far as to say that if you're a Christian, you must vote a certain way. And if you don't say it, sometimes you think it. When Katie and I lived in Northern Ireland, Belfast, Northern Ireland, we honestly heard a pastor preaching from a pulpit to his Northern Irish congregation on a Sunday morning. We heard him telling his congregation who American Christians were morally obligated to vote for. Just digest that for a moment. Uh, Incidentally, I really enjoyed being a fly on the wall of the conversation that my wife had with him afterwards. (laughs) That was fun. (laughs) But we think it even if we don't say it. And we might be thinking right now, I have more of a right to think it than that guy did. True, but you still shouldn't be thinking it. We judge them who vote differently from us as either having less understanding or having faulty moral compasses. We want His kingdom to come right here, right now, in our country, on our terms, enforcing our agenda. And we experience this temptation no matter what side of the political aisle we fall on. All that changes is what agenda we want Him to pursue and who we think deserves His judgment. This is what people in Jesus' time wanted from their Messiah too. They wanted a political revolution. And Jesus did come to bring a new kingdom and one that would last forever. But His kingdom is not of this world and it is not on our schedule. Many of the items on your kingdom to-do list are things that absolutely will be addressed in Jesus' coming kingdom. Revelation 21 tells us that there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. But Jesus is the Savior of the entire world. He's making all things new, redeeming everyone, restoring everything, fixing all that is broken, every vertical and horizontal relationship. 
And we, along with the people who saw him as the new David, have too small of a picture in our minds sometimes of who he is and what he is coming to fix. The next group after the Pharisees to come and ask Jesus a question are the Sadducees. Their particular theological distinctive was that they did not believe in a life after death. This was their defining theological issue. They approached Jesus, and true to form, their question is about whether there is a life after death. But take note of the tone. They're convinced already that they're right and he's wrong, and this is just another attempt to catch Jesus out and discredit him. The nature of the question this time is not political, it's theological. But just like the question asked by the Pharisees, it's going to reveal that their picture of God and what he is doing in the world is too small. Uh, Jesus' response starts and ends with two of my favorite sentences in Mark's gospel. Uh, He starts by saying, Is this not the reason you are wrong, that you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? And he ends with the rather succinct statement, You are quite wrong. I'm definitely going to use that a few times this week. Uh, Apologies in advance if it happens to be you. Uh, But Jesus isn't being meek or mild here. Uh, Although, in his defense, the the Sadducees, not that they know it, have just literally attempted to debate eschatology with God incarnate. Again, though, Jesus' response ultimately refocuses the crowd on the big picture, on what he has come to achieve, which is to reestablish the relationship between God and humanity. The Sadducees believed that the Jewish nation were God's chosen people, that the law should be observed, to keep them in right relationship with Him, but they believed that after death there was nothing. A lifetime of observance to the law in order to remain in right relationship with God, and then you die and it's over. God blesses you in this life for obedience, brings judgment in this life for disobedience, and then you're gone tomorrow and it's done. Over. Any promises God makes in Scripture are for this life and this life only. And the question they asked is designed to expose life after death as a fallacy. They talk about a woman who had seven husbands but no children. Who would she even be married to in the next life? The point that they're making is that all of the laws that govern their relationship with God, everything in the entire covenant, is focused on this temporary life in this temporary world. They don't see any parameters being set for a relationship that will go on eternally after death, and therefore, they believe that that relationship must end with death. Again, as with the Pharisees, Jesus is about to expose the smallness of their thinking. Breaking down his response, he first highlights that they have not understood Scripture. God describes himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob long after those men have all died. If they're just dead and gone, and there's no life after death, why is God still describing himself that way? The second part of his answer, though, is to say that they have not understood the power of God. God has not simply established his covenant with his people in order to bless them in this life. No, God has done this through the Messiah. He intends to extend that blessing to all the families of the earth and for all eternity. Their vision of the blessings God was extending to humanity was far, far too small. As for the woman and her many husbands, life in the kingdom would revolve around the long-awaited union between God and His people, and life as it was meant to be, 
Humanity in eternal communion with our Heavenly Father, with everything redeemed and restored. The Sadducees' picture of God was of one who is to be worshipped and served in this life, and then we die while He goes on, and that's it. But Jesus' rebuke of them communicates that this vision of the power of God is too small. God wants eternal relationship with His people. I think in the same way, much of the time, we think and pray and plan as if this life is all there is, even if that's not what we actually think. Much of what we ask Him for revolves around our comfort, our safety, our security in this life, or the comfort, safety, and security of those we love. But are we praying for His kingdom to come? Are we praying for all things to be redeemed and brought under the Lordship of Christ? Are we praying for the second coming? I'll be the first to confess that I have occasionally thought, Lord Jesus, I really do want you to come back, but not yet. I want to see my kid grow up first. I want to see him graduate. I want to see him have a family of his own. I want to have grandkids. I want to visit more countries. I want to go on that cruise in February. I want to have more success. I want to make more money. I'm kind of enjoying my life. But in these moments, we have the same small mindset as the, the Sadducees, assuming the blessings that we can see and touch are all that there is. Instead of pondering the moment that we will stand before the throne and see Him face to face. The eternal blessings God has given us in His Son, Jesus Christ, far outstrip any of the blessings we could receive in this life. Our vision needs to be bigger. So the pattern in the chapter is established. Two groups have come and asked questions that expose how small God is in their minds, and they've been redirected by Jesus to the gigantic blessings God is offering the world through the Messiah, and redirected to focus on what for Jesus was the main thing, the divine human relationship. The third individual to come and ask a question of Jesus in this text is going to learn from this. But before we get to that, let me ask you a question. The second man on the moon, whoever lined up against Usain Bolt in the 100-meter finals at the Olympics, whoever was not on Tom Brady's team at the Super Bowl, France at the last World Cup, France in most of their battles with England, the guy who suggested the telephone right after Alexander Graham Bell, whoever successfully flew a plane immediately after the Wright brothers, Every vice president, the scribe who asks Jesus about the greatest commandment in Mark 12, what do they all have in common? Not a rhetorical question. I don't ask those. Somebody take a guess. Huh? I don't know their name. We? <laughs> Good guess. No, not what I'm looking for. All right, I'll tell you. They could all relate very much to the phrase, so near and yet so far. The scribe who steps up to ask Jesus the next question has clearly learned from the mistakes of those before him, and he asks a question that is specifically about the divine human relationship. Perhaps because he's seen Jesus turn both of the previous conversations back in that direction. His intention for asking the question seems to be somewhat different 
than the other groups that came before him in the text. It's not clear that he's trying to trick or trap Jesus like those before. He simply asks, what is the most important commandment? The fact that he brings this question to Jesus probably indicates that he comes into the conversation already believing that Jesus was a good example of how people should live or that he had a strong understanding of the law. We know from Scriptures that nobody could point out a single example of Jesus failing to keep any aspect of the law. So perhaps it was a genuine question being asked by someone who saw Jesus as a good example or as a reliable source of knowledge of the law. And Jesus, in his response, seems to perceive that his motivation for asking the question is different. He doesn't call him out for setting a trap like the Pharisees or wax eloquent about how wrong he is like the Sadducees. He simply gives him a straight answer, showing that the entire catalog of commandments can be summarized by the need to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the need to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what's most important. And the scribe likes Jesus' answer, and he voices his agreement, elaborating that loving God and neighbor are more important than sacrifices and offerings. The really interesting sentence is Jesus' final response, which is that you are not far from the kingdom of God. Why does Jesus pay him that compliment? In the flow of the chapter, it's because he's not understood what's most important. He has understood what's most important in a way that the others had not. Jesus had to redirect the previous groups to focus on the bigger picture of the divine human relationship, but he didn't need to be redirected because this was his starting point. Perhaps he saw that this is Jesus' primary interest, and he started by seeking counsel from Jesus on what the most important things are in his relationship with God. And he understands that loving God with all your heart and soul, earnestly loving Him and seeking to know Him more, and earnestly loving your neighbor with your thoughts, your words, and your deeds are considerably higher priorities than any other pursuit. And he wants to know how to do it better. But here's an important question now. In saying that he's not far from the kingdom of God, Jesus still implies that he's not there yet. Why is that? He clearly understands the law. He understands he has to love God and love his neighbor, that this is more important than ritual, more important than having the finer points of your theology or the right political opinions. So why is the scribe not there yet? Well, the clue comes in the question Jesus himself asks next. In verse 35, Jesus takes his turn to ask a question, and in so doing, he shows what this scribe, along with all the other groups of questioners, have missed. And he shows how even though the scribe understood the law so well, he was still picturing a God that was too small. While teaching in the temple, Jesus asks why the scribes, the same group this man belonged to, teach that the Messiah is the son of David, when David himself refers to the Messiah as Lord. Jesus' point in asking the question is very simple. The Messiah is not simply a descendant of David who comes to rule as an earthly king. If he was, David would not refer to him as my Lord. And this is what the scribe is missing. This is why he's near the kingdom, but he's not there. The Messiah himself is God incarnate. Jesus is not merely a source of knowledge about the law or a good example of how to follow the law. No, he is fulfilling all the requirements of the law on behalf of fallen humanity who are unable to do it themselves 
so that when He takes our sin on Himself, His righteousness can be placed on us, and we can be in right relationship with God again. Again, the vision of God that is presented by the scribe is way too small. He's not just a good teacher or a good example to follow to help us get it right. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the door for the sheep. There is no way into the kingdom except in recognizing that Jesus is Savior and Lord. He has taken the curse that was on us for our disobedience, and we are set to inherit the blessing for His obedience. Like this scribe, our vision of Jesus and the life He lived can be too small. You can love your neighbor as yourself all day and every day. You can join every campaign for justice, for equal rights. You can feed the hungry, clothe the naked, provide shelter for the homeless. You can advocate day and night for those whose rights have been infringed upon. You can have all the right political opinions. You can have the finer points of a million theological debates spot on. And much of this we should try to do. But if Jesus is not your Lord, you are still in the category of this scribe who was so near and yet so far. As our Messiah, Jesus came to bridge the gap between humanity and God through His death and to bring us into the eternal kingdom with Him through His victory over death in the resurrection, none of which can possibly be achieved apart from through Him. Jesus came to be Savior and Lord. This is who the Messiah is. Yes, He was a political commentator. Yes, He was a good teacher. Yes, He's a good example to follow in how to better love God and neighbor. But ultimately, Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord to the glory of God the Father. And acknowledging and living in these truths is the gateway into the kingdom of God. Each of our questioners had a vision that was way too small of who God was and what He was doing. They didn't hear Micah when he said that Messiah's coming forth would be from eternity. They didn't hear Isaiah when he said that the child born would be called Mighty God. They didn't hear Daniel when he said the Son of Man would be served by all people and would rule an everlasting kingdom. And they certainly didn't hear the unified testimony of all the prophets who foretold that the Messiah would make peace between God and humanity through His shed blood. Now, in saying this, for many of you, I'm preaching to the choir. Some of you quite literally. You believe Jesus is Lord and you know that He's your Savior. However, if we take some time to consider what we ask Jesus, what we pray about, what we spend our time thinking about and obsessing over. It might help us to see some ways in which we are not seeing God and His activity in the world clearly and some ways that our vision is too small. As we touched on earlier, firstly, we have to recognize that oftentimes we get so desperately caught up in the immediate issues of our time and place that in our minds they can become the number one issue that Jesus needs to work on. Sometimes, like messianic expectation in Jesus' own time, our hopes and prayers for what we want to see Him change are far too small. They wanted Rome overthrown and a return to the prosperity of David and Solomon. And we too want a glorified political revolutionary who will bring our agenda to pass in our time and place. And, you know, there are some good reasons to want that. They had good reasons to want Rome overthrown. Roman rule could be bloody, 
violent and oppressive. And there are many serious issues in our time that we should long to see Jesus return and set right. And God sees those issues that you see. And He does act in the here and now. But He's Lord over every empire, every people group, every tribe, tongue, and nation, past, present, and future. And He is coming again to correct every injustice, fix everything that's broken, right every wrong, past, present, and future, across nations and generations. This is what we should be praying for. It's a big world out there. And every person on every inch of land is in desperate need of the return of Christ. Paul tells us that even creation itself groans as it awaits redemption. We need to pray bigger prayers. Not just to see our land that we're living in set the way we want it to be set now, but to see the entire globe redeemed once and for all. Secondly, like the Sadducees, we can easily get drawn into patterns of behavior that indicate our vision is limited to the blessings available to us in this life. Jesus said it was hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. He warned about giving in order to receive your reward in this life. He told us to store up treasure in heaven. He said these things because the blessings of this life can blind us. Jesus came to die and rise again, not so we could experience comfort and blessings in this life. Now, life is full of wonderful things, family, love, children, grandchildren, vacation, discoveries to be made, new places to explore, familiar places to draw comfort. But all the blessings of this world pale in comparison to those which Christ came to offer us. We should long for the second coming. We should long for those blessings that are ours in Christ. We should pray that He comes and brings them with Him soon. And thirdly, like the scribe, we can find ourselves sometimes seeing the Bible as a useful guidebook in how to live and Jesus as a good example to follow. And we can be tempted to think that if we love God with all our hearts and love our neighbor as ourselves, that things will turn out okay. But Jesus didn't come simply to show us how to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill it for us. He came to make a way where there was no way and to transfer His credit to us while bearing the cost of our failure in His body on the cross. Of course, we should follow His example. We should love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We should love our neighbor as ourselves, but not so that we can be right with God. We should do it because we have been made right with God. We should do it for love of God, we should do it with thankful hearts. We should do it for His kingdom and His glory. We have the privilege of being a part of the body of Christ and being a part of what He is doing in the world. By His grace, He is working in us and through us by His Spirit to bring His kingdom here on earth now. And one day soon, He is coming back to finally put everything right. And because of what He did on the cross, we will be with him when he does, and we will be blessed by it for eternity to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to die and rise again, to make peace through his blood, and to restore us to a right relationship with you.
Help us not to be overwhelmed by the problems and fears of our time and place, but to earnestly pray for the redemption of all things and the righting of every wrong. Help us not to be blinded by the blessings of this life, but to earnestly seek the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. Help us not to trust in loving you and our neighbor well as if we can be a source of our own salvation and righteousness, but to love you and our neighbor because you have first loved us in Christ. And above all, we pray that you would return soon, Lord Jesus. In your mighty name, amen.